0: now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Joseph Addington. I am the president of Young Georgists of America, and I recently wrote an article for Persuasion titled The Forgotten Philosopher Who Can Fix Our Economy, discussing the relevance of the thought of 19th century political economist Henry George. Modern times increasingly resemble the Gilded Age when George wrote, Increasing inequality and political unrest underpin the feeling that the nation is no longer working for the majority of the people. George, in his book Progress and Poverty, made the case that the fundamental cause of inequality was rooted in the classical conception of monopoly, particularly that of the land. As technology improves and urbanization increases, land rents soak up the gains pinching the worker and the business owner, while enriching the speculator who contributes nothing to the market. This tends to make the economy less efficient and more unequal. In making his case, George drew on a long tradition of classical liberalism from Adam Smith to Thomas Paine. Liberalism was born in the shadows of feudalism and focused on fighting the special privileges of the aristocracy, all of which were rooted in land ownership, which funded their retinues and fueled their lifestyle. George's argument was that liberalism was incomplete It had abolished the political privileges of the aristocracy, but left intact the special economic privileges which allowed them to arise in the first place. His proposal was to replace other taxes with taxes on the value of land. In this way, land rents, instead of going into the pockets of landowners, would be used for the public benefit, while abolishing other income taxes, allowing the flourishing of free trade and free societies. George's argument was more than simply for land value taxation, of course. It has broad implications for the economy and for society. George's thinking is again needed. In our modern world of increasing inequality, political frustration, the sense that the system is rigged against the common man, a new economic vision based on equal opportunity rooted in the equal right of man to the land can appeal to both sides of the political spectrum can reconcile the desire for justice and equality with the need for efficiency in the economy, heal our fractured American Republic by transcending the poison of populism and partisanship.
1: Joseph Addington's piece called The Forgotten Philosopher Who Can Fix Our Economy was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
2: Sarah Longwell is the publisher of The Bulwark and the founder of a whole number of organizations, including Republican Voters Against Trump. She has a great podcast in which she talks about the many, many, many focus groups she runs. And I always think that People would understand this country and other countries so much better. They actually spend time talking to ordinary voters. And so I think Sarah has a lot of insight because of that. We had a conversation that's a little bit more nitty gritty than some of the stuff in this podcast, really trying to think through what's likely to happen with the 2024 Republican field for the presidential nomination, whether somebody might be able to beat Donald Trump what Democrats should do, whether Joe Biden or Kamala Harris should be the candidate and who the most promising alternatives are. But we also talked about whether the January 6th hearings are starting to break through and how people who care about maintaining democratic institutions in the United States uh, should talk about the threat to those democratic institutions in a way that actually is able to move and persuade people. Sarah Longwell, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Yasha, my friend. Thanks for having me.
2: So you wear many different hats, but one of your hats is as one of the great propagators of focus groups. And you've been talking a lot in the last weeks and months to people about Donald Trump and the January 6th hearings. So there was a big debate about whether or not those hearings would change anybody's mind. And it's tempting to think that they wouldn't because Donald Trump has been around for a long time. He's been pretty open about who he is all along. Do you think the January 6th hearings are having an impact on how Americans view him? And more broadly, how do most Americans now feel about Donald Trump?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that the way that people have been framing it is, will the January 6th hearings break through? And I guess my response to that would be, it's not so much that they're breaking through as that they're seeping in. And changing minds is real hard. However, giving people a little psychic permission to move on is something that can be done. And so if I've done nine focus groups since the hearings began, all with Trump, 20 voters. And the most stunning thing that has happened is that in the groups, fully four of them, zero of the respondents wanted to see Trump run again in 2024. We did an analysis of the nine groups and it was about 15% wanted to see him run again in 2024. And that is only significant because prior to the January 6th hearings, we had done dozens and dozens and dozens of focus groups with Trump voters since like the real January 6th. And half the group always wanted him to run or more, half or more. It rarely fell below half of the group. And it's not just the sheer numbers, right? You could do a poll for that. The thing about the focus groups is, it's what they say. Why? And right now, the reason seems to be people are very worried that Donald Trump can't win in 2024. They are starting to have doubts about his electability. And this is where I think that the hearings have really made a difference, because one of the reasons Joe Biden was elected and nominated by the Democrats is not necessarily because he was everybody's top choice. He was nominated because he was the one everybody thought other people would vote for and that he could win and beat Donald Trump. And so what I'm seeing happen to the psychology of these Republicans is they are starting to doubt that Trump is the person who can win in 2024. They are worried that they still like him, to be clear, right? They are not turning on him. They're not watching the hearings and thinking, oh boy, Donald Trump, what a bad man he is. I sure was wrong about him. What they're saying is, I don't know. I think he might have too much baggage, too many people don't like him. You know, I we really need to win in 2024. I think there are better people, which is I think actually another real key component and something that has started to, to percolate in the focus groups. I think that one thing that sort of corresponded or happened at the same time as the January 6th committee was the sort of Ron DeSantis boomlet. And his name comes up all the time in the focus groups. One of the things the voters say is they say two things to me that are interesting. One is yeah, Trump is great. He did great things for the country. He was a great president, but I think maybe we need some new blood. We got a lot of stars. I really like Ron DeSantis. I like Christy Gnome. Interested in Tim Scott, kind of like Ted Cruz. Like they got a bunch of people that they're interested in that are fresh. So that's one piece. Of, although, actually, I just want to say they're all from like the America first wing of the party. So I just watched Mike Pence's speech at the YAF conference and I brought to mind that five easy pieces line. You know, I faked a little Chopin and you faked a big response, because it was like Mike Pence giving this wooden policy talk while young people sort of politely clapped. Nobody wants Mike Pence. Nobody wants Nikki Haley. So I think that there's just new people that they're interested in. And so that combination of new people, along with the January 6th hearings, I think are conspiring right now, because I've seen things change. I've seen people sort of sour on Trump and then come back to him. But in this moment, people just are starting to doubt that he can win.
2: That's very interesting. I mean, I think throughout the Trump years, and I'm sure the same happened to you, when I would give talks somewhere, people would say, you know, how do we convince these hardcore Trump fans to stop being, you know, hardcore Trump fans? And I always thought that's the wrong question, right? What we need is to be able to defeat somebody who's a threat to the American Republic at the polls. And, you know, it's okay if he has his hardcore fans, they're not the target audience. And what you're saying right now sort of adds to that, which is number one, you know, people sort of like him and sort of like some other Republicans are being pushed in the direction of other Republicans because their assessment of his likelihood to win is changing. And perhaps even some people who are pretty uncritical of Trump are thinking, well, is he our best bet? Why don't we go somewhere else? You know, if you step away from these Republicans and Republican primary voters that you've been talking to in focus groups and think about the general U.S. population, How would you sort of assess the distribution of views about Trump? I mean, how many people are hardcore fans of him? How many people think, you know, he was a good president and and I liked him, but, you know, he always has some downsides. How many people sort of mildly dislike him? How many people really dislike him? Like sort of zooming out across the population, would you say is the general view of him?
1: Well, far more people dislike him than like him. I mean, I think that there's probably 30% total of the population that was kind of in Trump's camp and in a smaller proportion of them who are really hardcore Trumpers. But I want to distinguish between Trump the man and Trump the phenomenon, because Trump the man, he's got this really hardcore base. And the fact is, we can talk about 2024 in a little bit, but that hardcore base could potentially get him through a Republican primary, even if, broadly speaking, people are starting to sour on him. But Trump the phenomenon has really taken hold. I mean, the thing with these voters and the groups where they say, Yeah, you know, actually, I forgot to make the second point about things that people say. It sounds like a really obvious thing, but when somebody said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. They say, well, with Trump, you only get four years, but with a different Republican, you get eight years, right? And so if you're a partisan... And it's really important to you that Republicans be in charge.
2: Or the Democrats not be in charge, as I'm sure is
0: the case. You know.
1: Or the Democrats not be in charge. That's right. Uh, the Democrats not be in charge. Then you are interested in maximizing the amount of time that Republicans are in power. And I tweeted this at one point, and I got a lot of people being like, well, that assumes that Trump would leave after four years. And like that's a fair point from Twitter. But like these voters aren't thinking like that. They still think Trump's kind of a normal-ish enough... Person, They do not see him as an existential threat to democracy the way that you and I might. But there's a Russian expression, the appetite increases while you're eating. And the thing that I I keep trying to impress upon people is that even if Trump the man wanes in the imaginations of people, they have decided that they love his particular combative style of politics. They crave it. They want it, which is why there's no going back to the old guard and why he's sort of fundamentally changed what the party looks like. You know, there's a reason that all of the candidates in 2022 look like little mini Trumps running around talking about the election being stolen and critical race theory and, you know, a lot of vaguely QAnon candidates or they're going to go rhino hunting, posing with guns. Trump, he has unleashed a force that has changed what the Republican Party looks like and what the voters want out of their elected officials, and it ain't Mike Pence.
2: So let's talk for a moment about the 2024 primary. You're saying that Ron DeSantis comes up a lot. That's interesting to me because I had thought of DeSantis as a media phenomenon, right? Where people on Fox News and other influential networks within the right-wing sort of ecosystem are pushing a candidate who emulates some of Trump's policy stances in certain respects, some of his style, but who they view, for some good reason, as more respectable and less personally unhinged and personally vindictive and all of those kinds of things. It always seemed to me that DeSantis is lacking in charisma in a way that would make it very hard for him to beat Trump. It sounds like what you're hearing is that there's some genuine enthusiasm for DeSantis among the base. So what do you think the likelihood of somebody like DeSantis beating Trump is? And what do you think the likelihood of somebody else beating Trump in the Republican primaries? races?
1: Yeah, well, you're right that Ron DeSantis is a media phenomenon, but not in the way that you think. It is not because the right wing or like more respectable sort of corners of right wing media are pushing Ron DeSantis. It's the opposite. It is the extent to which the mainstream media has been attacking Ron DeSantis, especially around COVID. And because the mainstream media has attacked Ron DeSantis, they have elevated his brand and name recognition that has allowed him to become a kind of media lightning rod, right? And so like one of the things that's really a central tenet of the focus groups is that the things that we talk about and focus on in Washington or like on Twitter, you walk into a focus group and you ask people about it and they have no idea what you're talking about. And... You know, it's the same with candidates often, you know, you'll be like, how many of you have heard of Mike Pompeo <laughs> or how many of you have heard of Larry Hogan? And everybody just stares at you blankly. I mean, actually not, not so much Mike Pompeo now. He's from the Trump cinematic universe and they kind of know who he is and some people like him. So to have a bunch of normie Republican voters like in Ohio know who the governor of Florida is, is actually remarkable. And it's because he's picked this fight with the media that so many people know him and like him because they think he has the right enemies because that is how people define this stuff now.
0: And that's so
2: funny because normally it seems to me that Democrats keep falling in this trap where Democrats in the mainstream media know, know, these, uh, know the same thing, for they are associated with each other in certain key respects, where they keep elevating things by attacking them often in unsubtle ways, and then those things become stronger. In the case of Ron DeSantis, I have very mixed feelings about this because I'm certainly no fan of Ron DeSantis. I would also much rather that Ron DeSantis be president in 2024 than that Donald Trump be president in 2024 but it actually seems like an inadvertently clever move to some extent, right? That if you want to have somebody be able to take on Trump, going on a full-on attack, including on a full-on attack on things that in retrospect are kind of a little bit complicated, like the different COVID policies or different states pursued, actually was a very clever tactic for building up an adversary to Trump. Now, I don't think that there's any Conscious agency in this. I don't think about anybody in the media who is freaking out about DeSantis thought this is a clever way of building up a credible rival to Donald Trump. And all things considered, we would rather have that rival than Donald Trump. But it's sort of a funny mechanism by which that happened.
1: It totally is. I also do not think there was any conscious agency. I think people with Trump in retreat in Mar a Lago, Ron DeSantis became kind of the face of the fight over COVID. And I think that actually there is a very deep underestimation I used to talk about this a lot, you know, 10 months ago or something, especially after Yunkin won. I just don't think anybody had a beat on how mad people were about the COVID closures and how long it went on and how exhausted people were by it. The governors that are the most popular, um, whether it's Jared Polis or Brian Kemp in Georgia, who was able to just dominate in his primary, and Ron DeSantis are people who kind of made it a point to stay open and to not take really strong measures. And at some point, Democrats like realized this. like they just realized how politically it was really after Youngkin's surprising win in Virginia that they were like, oh, man, this covid thing is killing us. Anyway, I just think the media was very like, how irresponsible is this guy? And voters were like, we love him. This is great. Move to Florida, the free state. And I just think DeSantis built a brand. He also then picked a couple other fights. I mean, I think the don't say gay bill is obviously not the actual name of the bill. And Ron DeSantis was able to position himself. So it's kind of the grievance culture warrior, like, hey, look, I just don't want kindergartners to be told about trans issues. And the thing is, is to, I think, a majority of people under that framing, they say, well, that does sound reasonable. Why are they teaching about trans issues to kindergartners? That doesn't make any sense. And of course, these are much more nuanced debates, but like that was a 60-40 issue in his favor. And then picking the fight with Disney, you think, my goodness, that's got to blow back against him. But of course, it didn't. It did nothing but elevate him. But going back to your question, like, can he win against Trump? So here's the thing. I think yes, potentially. I do think that campaigns matter a great deal. And the dynamics of a candidate actually being out there matter a great deal. We have not seen Ron DeSantis outside of Florida. We don't know what he looks like mano a mano with Trump. DeSantis has billed himself. I don't know if you remember when he launched his campaign, but I will never forget it. Because when I first met Ron DeSantis, it was through his opening campaign ad, which was him billing himself as a mini Trump. He was with his kids and his kids with his daughter. He was building blocks saying, yeah, build the wall. He was reading the art of the deal to his baby son.
2: Oh my god!
1: He had his baby in the crib in like a Trump onesie and he was staring at him going big league. Oh yeah. Like imitating Trump. It was like a self-conscious. I am the mini Trump of Florida. And that is how he won. And so DeSantis is like a guy it's like an all about Eve situation (laughs) like he is trying to copy Trump and then hope he can be Trump without the baggage. And so I wonder what that looks like when they're on. Now, I don't know that Donald Trump debates anybody on a stage, but like the question is, is like once it's a split screen, once you're facing off, how does that work? And also when Trump is attacking you, like we saw this in 2016 he has no bottom he has no parameters and so when you're in a dogfight with trump how do you do and so all of those things are like tbd but the one thing that is to trump's advantage i think is that you know he really does have this hardcore base and if you get a split field right if you get Nikki Haley jumps in, Mike Pence jumps in, Chris Christie jumps in, you know, DeSantis is in, Christie, no, I don't know, like whoever, Larry Hogan, Liz Cheney, and they're splitting it up just like in 16, Trump can be over there with his... 35 or 40 percent plurality and still win. And so he doesn't need a majority of the party. Hopefully people would drop out sooner this time having experience. But anyway, it's just math, right? Like he doesn't need the whole party. And it'll be interesting to see how those dynamics shift as we go forward. Trump can lose, but I would still not count him out.
2: So let me ask one more question about the Republican field. And I want to broaden out a little bit, which is how should we as people who care about the constitution and the laws of the United States feel about somebody like DeSantis winning against Trump in the primary? Now, I have to admit, but I haven't done my homework on DeSantis yet. I haven't read all of the profiles that have come out on him. I haven't looked into detail into the particular laws he passed in Florida. You know, certainly, I'm not a political fan of his. Certainly, I think that Many of the laws he passes seem to me to be violations of important liberal principles. Certainly, it gives me pause that he did originally position himself as a kind of mini-Trump in the way you're saying. But I also do think that there is something particularly pernicious about Donald Trump, who not only had very extreme and irresponsible rhetoric from the beginning, calling into doubt whether he would accept the outcome of elections and so on, but who has in fact proven his willingness to subvert the peaceful transfer of power in 2020 and the first days of 2021. So my instinct is to think, well, DeSantis has got to be somewhat better than Trump, if only because we're less sure about his intentions to undermine <laughs> democratic institutions. So as somebody who I think follows these candidates more closely than I do, what is your assessment? I'm not asking would you vote for DeSantis, but you know, if you could ensure that DeSantis is a candidate rather than Trump, How reassured would you be about our immediate political future in that kind of scenario?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I myself do not find Ron DeSantis particularly appealing. His attacks on Disney were actually retributive. They were a vengeance. Like he had already won. They had passed the legislation. He went after Disney. And to me, it was a political figure attacking an American company on free speech grounds and trying to punish them for their speech. I think it is crazy that all of the free speech advocates on the right seem to be giving a pass to a politician who is punishing a company for its speech in material ways. It's a much bigger deal than a pile on on Twitter. And so it frustrates me that there hasn't been as much sort of focus on that by the right since they have these purported beliefs that it is the left who is so illiberal, which I agree that those tendencies are there. But like Ron DeSantis, he embodies some of them. And so, look, if Trump had never existed, I would look at a guy like Ron DeSantis if he was behaving exactly the way that he behaves now, and I would view him as quite dangerous and somebody that I would absolutely not vote for. The problem is is that the Overton window on what dangerous is has moved considerably. And so now, if you push me into a binary between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, I'm going to say Ron DeSantis is less dangerous. And then I'm going to have a long talk with the Democrats about how they need to pull themselves together and go find somebody who can beat Ron DeSantis and who can build a broad coalition against him. But I suspect Ron DeSantis will be pretty popular if he runs. The question about like how illiberal would he be? So one of the things that I have always felt like enabled Trump to be more illiberal than anybody else and why I think he's a unique threat, is that Trump does not care about the Republican Party. He doesn't care about his standing in the Republican Party. doesn't care how the Republican Party does. He only cares about his wholesale ownership of the Republican Party. Literally doesn't care what anybody, any other elected official thinks about him. He will just curb stomp them in his style. DeSantis is still young enough in his career, right, that he does kind of care. And so like, he can be constrained, I think, by like the Republican apparatus. And sometimes those are famous last words. I agree with your assessment that Trump is a unique threat and that Ron DeSantis is not. In part two, I see DeSantis being able to kind of do a conventional move of being really like a lunatic in the primaries and then immediately shaping up into a much more broadly appealing candidate in a way that Trump would never have the discipline to do because Trump is entirely controlled by his id. The argument, though, that's contrary to that. So the people who say, well, Ron DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump, which I don't agree with, but their argument goes like this. Ron DeSantis is much smarter than Trump, and so he could achieve his illiberal aims much more effectively. You know, Donald Trump was a clown, and he just like didn't really know how the systems of governments worked, and so he couldn't get anything done, or it took him a long time, and everything was kind of a failure. But Ron DeSantis will be smarter, more strategic.
2: Yeah, so I think there's sort of a few different considerations, and this is helpful to me in starting to think through this. One is a line that I've used many times in the early years of Donald Trump, which is if it was a populist Olympics, Donald Trump would not make medal rank. Right? There are just populists internationally who are way more disciplined, way smarter politically, way more strategic, and it turns out that they did a lot more damage because they were able to sustain enough broad-based popularity that they were able to concentrate power in their own hands much more than Trump, and so therefore it proved impossible to remove them from the office of a one by democratic means. And Viktor Orban is the obvious example of that. So that is the main concern that I think one should have about a more disciplined politician like DeSantis. Now, I think on the other hand, there's three potential ways in which DeSantis is less dangerous than Trump. The first is charisma. I think it just is important to have charisma if you want to concentrate power in your own hands. It's important to have an absolute fervent following among one part of the base of the population. And it's just not clear to me whether Santos is going to be able to sustain that. He might be popular because he takes policy stances that are popular or because he knows how to pick the right enemies and so on. I don't think that that quite is the same as that kind of animalistic charisma that just gives you this unquestioning support among one portion of the population. And that I think is somewhat reassuring. The second thing I would say is that it's unclear whether he's an ideologue or a cynic. It seems like he is perhaps more on the cynical side. And as you're pointing out, that might mean that the moment he has the nomination, he pivots and his incentive structure is different than that of somebody who's the kind of narcissist who probably scores very highly on the dark triad personality traits as Donald Trump or you are above everything else. And the third, I guess, is a distinction between illiberal laws that I will always passionately oppose, but that can easily be corrected as soon as the political wind shift or as soon as somebody is thrown out of office, versus attacks on the political system which undermine the possibility of that course correction. So I think what we know Ron DeSantis would do in office is to pass a bunch of illiberal laws that I would passionately oppose, but that can in principle be revoked relatively quickly once his hold over political system fades. I think so far the evidence that he's willing to undermine the outcome of an election, that he's willing to try and stay in power even though he loses an election, is much weaker. I wouldn't say that there's strong evidence that he wouldn't do that, but we know that Donald Trump would do that. And we just don't yet know that about DeSantis. And that seems, if you're having to make a choice, which hopefully we won't be, like a relevant difference.
1: Is that a helpful way of thinking through this, you think? I think that's good. But when you say, hopefully we won't have to make that choice, what do you mean?
2: Well, personally, I hope that I'm not going to be in a position where I have to cast a ballot for either Mr. DeSantis or Mr. Trump. And that perhaps leads us to the second part of a conversation, which is, well, what should Democrats do? So why don't you walk us through how we see the situation? Do you think that Joe Biden could beat a Trump or DeSantis in 2024? If Joe Biden does not run, do you think that Kamala Harris could beat one of those two? Let's start with that question.
1: Yeah, no and no. And look, there's a million dynamics that I can't predict that would make my analysis potentially different in the face of these things. But I would just say Joe Biden, in my estimation, should not run again. I will tell you one of the main differences in the focus groups that I see between the two parties is that when you ask Republicans, should Donald Trump run again? Like I said, prior to the January 6th hearings, you know, you were getting like half the group say, yeah, I'd like to see Trump run again in 2024. But then you say, OK, well, Trump doesn't run. Who do you want to see run? They got a ton of people. Christy Noem, Ron DeSantis, you know, Tim Scott, Tucker Carlson. There's a bunch of scary people on the list. Candace Owens comes up a lot. Big enthusiasm. You ask a Democratic focus group, as I have many times, do you want to see Joe Biden run again? And they say, no, I do not. He is too old. They don't think he's a bad guy. They like him. He's done a good job, did the best he could, appreciate that he beat Trump, but they do not think he should run again. So, okay, who would you like to see run if Joe Biden doesn't run? And they just stare at me. And look, some of that can be chalked up to the fact that they are in the White House. And so people aren't out there scanning for other people at the moment. Although I would argue there's a fair amount of people who are scanning for potential other people. And, you know, mostly people kind of like, I don't know, they they like look at people who ran in twenty. But then they argue themselves out of it. Like, people will be like, well, Pete Buttigieg maybe, but they're like, ah, I don't know, that the miracle will vote for a gay guy. And then they're like, you know, I kind of like Elizabeth Warren, but I just don't think she can do it. And Bernie Sanders is too old. And then somebody inevitably will say, AOC? And everybody else in the group goes, no. I mean, there's nobody, there's nobody on the Democratic side who I think has risen to a place where there's, like DeSantis or like some of these other people, there's kind of an obvious circling
2: Why is that? Because it seems to me that the explanations I hear for why there's a daft of Democratic candidates aren't very convincing to me, right? So one is you sort of invoke, which makes sense. Like, look, Democrats have a White House. And so therefore, you know, there's not as much attention to other kinds of candidates and so on. But as you're saying, people are doing a lot of scanning, right? Another is that, you know, during Obama's presidency, you know, the administration didn't build up the party enough and Republicans hold more state houses than Democrats. And so there's more Republican governors. And so they have a deeper bench. And like, look, all of that matters for sure. But again, that just doesn't seem like a sufficient explanation. Explanation because there is a good number of Democratic governors and there's a good number of Democratic senators. And, you know, Democrats have been in power in the country a good amount of time, last 20 years. Like, none of that explains why the bench feels so thin. And so I wonder whether the explanation is a different one, which is that the Democratic politicians who really say what they think are ones that are far outside what most people believe, right? So AOC says what she thinks, I mean, I have a number of criticisms about her, but she's an authentic politician who says what she thinks. It's just that is not, in fact, a position that's popular among the American populace at large. And it's not even a position that is popular among most Democratic voters. And the politicians within the Democratic Party who are much closer to where the party actually is, including the non-white voters who vote for the Democratic Party and where the country as a whole is never sound authentic because they're always worried about whether what they'll tell you over lunch would get them canceled if they wrote it on Twitter or they said it in a speech. And so that's my sort of pet theory of not just why Democrats might lose against Trump, because they're also seen as being outside the cultural mainstream, like Trump is, even if in a very different way. But why we don't have candidates, because people look at Democratic politicians and they say, I don't trust you to say what you think. And so I don't know what you're about. And I don't know that I should trust you to run the country. Do you feel that's fair?
1: Like any other issue, it's like a combination of a bunch of these things. Like the bench got hollowed out. And so a lot of the best politicians, I think, are like two cycles in to their congressional careers. There was this whole group in 18 of Democratic women who were elected as moderates, who were, you know, Mikey Sherrill was like a helicopter pilot and Abigail Spanberger is a CIA analyst. And there's a bunch of cool people that are workhorses. Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan, who's going to be in a tough reelection cycle because she's in like a Trump plus five district now because redistricting, like she was in a Trump district before anyway, and she like barely hung on. There's like these workhorses who care about policy and they do things for their constituents and they're quite good, but they just don't get any attention. Because, you know, the show horses get all the attention, the work horses get very little.
2: And this is in part a problem, I think, of Democrat-aligned media, right? So in 2018, when it was big Democratic wave, you know, the squad was on the cover of every big magazine in the country. And at the same time, we had someone like Sharice Davids, a really interesting Native American representative from Kansas, I believe, who has a very interesting life story, I think used to be like a mixed martial arts combatant and is very accomplished, but she was a moderate. And so the party did not pay any attention to her. And probably most people listening to this podcast have never heard her name.
1: I haven't even heard her name. I'm like following who are the good moderates that I think could potentially be part of a future generation of sort of moderate Democrats that I think can win. And so, yeah, I I think it's partly it's the Democratic aligned media. It's the fact that they're a little less likely to go seeking the spotlight, in part because they can't build a big Twitter following talking about, hey, I secured a million dollars to, you know, whatever on energy or <laughs> I don't like they're not out there fighting the big progressive things that gets you a lot of love on Twitter and Twitter's where the media lives. And so there's this constant false frame about who's getting all the love and who's hot in these races. But this is one of the things that frustrates me because Trump was the president taking up lots of oxygen. And yet he built a like Trump cinematic universe in which there were lots of little Avenger mini Trumps who now are stars I don't actually watch those movies, so if my analogy is off, so apologies for that. But like, right, like Mike Pompeo is has his own sort of stardom and Tucker Carlson is a star and Ron DeSantis built a profile. And so I just don't understand why Democrats right now, like, it's weird. It's like there's not a big group of people that are out there trying to help Joe Biden advance his agenda. A couple months back, the big narrative was how bad Democrats messaging was. And I was one of the people really pounding on that because I was listening to my focus group participants saying, I never hear from Joe Biden. I never hear from Kamala Harris when they talked about Build Back Better or any of the legislation. They only knew the price tag. They didn't know what was in it. And so I didn't understand, like, fine, Joe Biden's not a very good communicator. He's an old guy. Send out the troops, like build a, a bench of surrogates, have people on TV, have people so you can identify, kind of breakout stars, who's good at selling an agenda, who's good at talking about policy, who's good at arguing about the politics of this. So
2: did they not do
1: that? They didn't. No, they just didn't.
2: Is it because people don't carry? Like what happened there?
1: Look, I think that there is something in Democrats that is just like different on the inside than Republicans, where they seek. I don't know quite how to formulate this, but I feel like they're scared of their own shadows. They are so afraid of, oh, Joe Biden's thing is not popular, so I don't want to go out and do it. I mean, like, I watched Republicans. Donald Trump was passing nothing. And still, they would go out there. You'd see Jim Jordan or, you you know, any one of these Trump acolytes being like, we moved the embassy to Jerusalem and, like, we did an executive order on this. And they would tick through five things and they would all say the exact same thing. And Democrats cannot get that discipline. People seem unwilling to go out and be the person to kind of carry the water. And Republicans like they circle, they circle the ranks and they go out and they push the message. And for some reason, the fear that's in Democrats on messaging and communications is weird to me.
2: That's very interesting. So speaking of messaging and communication, I want to get back to some of the candidates, but what do you think the message should be in 2024? It's going to be tough, in part because Democrats hold the White House, and unless the economy turns around a lot, which it might in the next two years, but it doesn't look like it necessarily will, you know, you're going to have high inflation, you may be in a recession or at the tail end of a recession. So voters tend to blame the incumbent party for those kind of ills, even if it's not necessarily before to the be incumbent party. So it's going to be an uphill struggle in a certain kind of way. On the other hand, Democrats will, as in 2020 and in 2016, be running against opponents that have real vulnerabilities. If it's Donald Trump, as you were saying at the moment, only about 30% of Americans actually like the guy. He's way out of the cultural mainstream. He seems bitter. He seems self-obsessed, right? So there's a lot to attack there. With somebody like Ron DeSantis, there would be a lot to attack too. So how do you think Democrats can overcome their vulnerabilities, exploit vulnerabilities of your opponent, and have a message which actually puts them into a good position in 2024?
1: So I agree. I think that Donald Trump he'd be very vulnerable. There's a reason that there's people out there who think they hope that it's Trump again because they think that he's beatable. And like most of the polling that has been out there, uh, you know, there's that big New York Times Siena poll that people have been referencing a lot, it showed Joe Biden with terrible approval ratings across the board and yet he was still beating Trump head to head because Trump is a vulnerable guy because he just can't win over these swing voters and he's in a worse position with them. That being said, That's a dice roll. I mean, if inflation is high, I'm not sure he loses in Pennsylvania or in Michigan. Like with inflation, the way it is, like he was running with COVID, you know, and people were still mad at him for how he handled COVID at the time. The economy had completely tanked, but like I think that Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden.
2: Just to refer to that, I mean, there have been a number of democratic politicians, and we've written about that in persuasion, who are really pushing Trump as candidates. So Josh Mondale did that in Pennsylvania, where democratic campaigns run these ads in the most conservative parts of their state, saying that, you know, the most election denying candidates for really important offices like governor or secretary of state are too conservative for the state. And it's a very obvious attempt to elevate MAGA-aligned candidates on the Republican side in the expectation we're going to be able to beat them. Now, I think it's true that Democrats will find it easier to beat a MAGA-aligned candidate than a moderate Republican candidate. I think we've actually underestimated the extent to which moderate positioning on both sides of the aisle increases your chances of victory. I think there's very strong political science evidence that this is true. But the consequence for the country is completely different. And even if your chance of beating the MAGA-aligned candidate is a little bit higher than your chance of beating a moderate Republican who actually would administer a fair election. It is an utterly irresponsible thing to do to try and boost those MAGA-aligned candidates. So we've seen a number of Democrats do that in the 2022 primary cycle. If Democrats try and do that in 2024 and think, let's somehow contrive to make sure that Trump is the candidate again in order to be able to beat him more easily than we might, something like Glenn Youngkin, that is moral and political malpractice.
1: Absolutely. It's insane. They've got to stop this. And, you know, it's been frustrating to like right now they're trying to help the primary candidate against Peter Meyer in Michigan so that Democrats can try to pick up that seat. Peter Meyer was one of 10 people who voted for impeachment and put his career on the line. And those are exactly the people I'm trying to save. That's like the last vestige of any hope of having reasonable voices in the Republican Party and to have Democrats boosting these MAGA primary candidates is so frustrating and so irresponsible. And also just like playing with fire. You went in. Inflation's at 8% and gas is five bucks. And, you know, the national mood is against you. These people could all be swept into office. And forget the congressional candidates, but like the Doug Mastrianos in Pennsylvania, who people were at January 6th. Like, I don't know that people should have an understanding of just how insane... All of the candidates are are across the 22 field. How many of them are election deniers, are people who were at January 6th, who are QAnon curious? Like the number of cranks who could be in Congress and in governor's mansions and in the Senate, Herschel Walker, like total lunatic. The Republican politics could look way worse. And Democrats are in a very weak position to be playing with this fire because they could lose. Maybe they're easier to beat, but that doesn't mean they're going to be easy to beat in this environment. So just nuts. But here's the thing. So, to your point, though, about Kamala Harris is not going to beat anybody. Why not? Oh, man. The Democrats and the focus groups dislike her so much.
2: So, what do Dems and the focus groups say about her?
1: Well, they're very disappointed in her. So, part of it, they say a lot about like, well, she had a lot of potential. I was, you know, I was really interested in seeing what she could do, but she's just nowhere. And this is actually to some degree not her fault. I mean, as best I can tell, the Biden administration has kind of try to keep her under wraps. And so I think there's been a cycle of... People don't like her, so they try to keep her under wraps. Some people don't like her more. And then when she does come out, she's not very practiced and she says something that's, too, you know, and like, but they just, they don't like her. They're kind. I mean, the Democrats are kind to the other Democrats, but they also don't think that she can win. And the Republicans really dislike her and the swing voters don't like her. And her approval rating's even lower than Biden's and Biden's is catastrophically low. <laughs> He's now at or below Trump territory as one of the most unpopular presidents in history. And I think of Ron DeSantis or somebody like that, against either of those candidates, you know, I think has a really good chance of winning. When you say he's got vulnerabilities, I mean, I don't think we've explored those vulnerabilities yet. When I say I can't really tell you, there's a lot of things we don't know. One of them is like, okay, well, what does Ron DeSantis look like on a national stage? I have no idea. But I think that the Democrats are going to have to go look at some of these governors. I mean, if Gretchen Whitmer emerges from the governor's race and she wins by five points or seven points, I think she jumps to the front of the pack. I think if Jared Polis is somebody who has kind of a name that gets kicked around, I, again, haven't seen him on the national stage But he had good COVID policies. He's very popular in his state. I think Democrats would be wise to start grooming some governors to get out there on the national stage, start putting them out front. But part of the problem is, is Biden says he's running. And what is a Democrat going to do? They got two problems. The first is, what, are they going to start putting themselves out there so that they get a little buzz while Joe Biden is still the president? Probably not. Two, then they got to leapfrog the first African-American female vice president. They don't think that's a good look either. And so I just think it's not easy to see the mechanics of how Democrats start to coalesce around a candidate unless after 2022, Joe Biden says, I'm a lame duck now, I'm not going to run again, and I'm not going to endorse anybody, and you guys have at it.
2: Yeah, so I think there's two questions here, right? Like, One is, is Joe Biden going to have the self-insight to realize that perhaps an 82-year-old is not the best representative of a Democratic Party in 2024. And that's hard to do after decades of wanting to be president and finally getting there, right? And thinking, I can turn this around. I'm unpopular right now, but, you know, I'm a good guy. And at the end of these eight years, I'm going to be celebrated. I mean, that's got to be his hope. And he is a very decent guy who we do owe a lot for beating Trump in 2020. And I found it interesting to see that in a recent video where some journalists asked him whether he would not run in 2024, that's the most alive I've seen him in a long time. I mean, he like jabbed his finger at the journalist and sort of, you know, he was really passionate about running again. That did not look like a sort of non committal denial of, of course, I'm planning to run, but leaving a door open. That felt like it came from the heart, but he's definitely planning to run. And then, as you're saying, I think for a number of reasons, it's very important. To have a real primary in 2024, if Joe Biden does not win. The party does not have good experiences of coronations, as we saw in 2016. And some really smart judges I've talked to have pointed out. You know, if Kamala Harris ends up being the winner of an open nomination process, that's great. But actually, she will be a better candidate if she's able to prevail in a real primary. And she'll be more able to unite the party if she has prevailed in a real open primary. As opposed to if there's this impression that, you know, the most senior leaders of the Democratic party have anointed her and voters didn't really have a choice in the matter. And she didn't have to develop her electoral pitch and win in that kind of contest in a way that gives her practice and stature and all of the things that you get from winning a tough primary. Matt Bennett said to me that no recent Democratic president has become president without having to win a really tough primary. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. Let's talk a little bit about the field. You've mentioned a few of the governors that may leapfrog to the top of the field at the end of this electoral cycle. I think Whitmer, Polis in Colorado, potentially Moore in Maryland who just won a primary, so he would have to, you know, win and immediately start running for president. But I've heard people talk about him. There's people like Pete Buttigieg, some people saying Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, who has an interesting political stance, he seems to have some personal weaknesses. You know, you have people saying someone like the former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, perhaps a senator. You have someone like Raphael Warnock from Georgia. Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar. You know, so there's a lot of prospects and no standouts, I would say, right? There's like 15 people who are sort of plausible, like any of these people are sort of plausible. And none of them are like, yes, this person. So do you think that if you had to take your bet on one of those candidates, who would it be and why? And what should Democrats who are hoping for a savior look out for?
1: Yeah, I mean... I'm going to pick three out of that crowded field and tell you why. So my first pick, I look, I like governors. I think that a Gretchen Whitmer, who I have not watched perform again a ton nationally, but I think if she emerges really strong against like a Tudor Dixon or something in our state, I think she jumps to the front. But I like the idea of governors. I liked it on the Republican side. I like it on the Democratic side. I think Pete Buttigieg is like objectively the best candidate from like a performance standpoint. I mean, this is a guy who has a once in a generation political talent. Once in a generation political talents tend to be Democrats' best paths. Oftentimes like there's just this star that emerges. The problem is is that New is the coin of the realm at the moment. And now people have seen Pete. I also think that he's got a real difficulty with black and brown voters. And I think some people think, well, you know, because he's gay, will that like appeal less to men in general? I don't know, but people do that thing where they assess other voters. And I think one of Pete's liabilities is people are worried that other people in the Democratic coalition won't vote for Pete, but he is still one of my personal favorites. And then Mitch Landrew is maybe my favorite in that field. Mitch Landrieu, he's got a real constituency among Black voters and a real connection to Black voters, which I think is extremely important for a Democratic candidate. He is also kind of a moderate, but he is some czar within the Biden administration and I think on infrastructure, but actually can't remember because he's not out there. He's not visible. Again, you know, just having this problem of not being out there. You know, you were struggling to remember his name and I only was able to come up with it. I thought I
2: managed to be subtle about that, but evidently not.
1: This is why. This is the problem. And so I really like Mitch Andrew personally, and I would like to see him start putting himself out there. But like Biden's big dilemma is like if he just waits too long, you know, he waits too long, and then there's not enough time for these guys to make a name for themselves, to break out. And I can see Biden getting kind of in that trap because the thing about Biden, and this is something that I think, number one, he is the only one who could have beaten Trump in 2020. I think that's clear, and so he thinks that about himself. However, he also did not have to campaign in 2020. Because of COVID, he mostly was able to zoom his way through that entire election. And that will not be the case in 2024. And 82, people already think, I mean, like Republicans think he has dementia, Democrats just think he's too old. And so I think running again at eight, people are like, it's not the, I've had people in focus groups say, it's not the 82 that's a problem. It's like, the 86 you know like like when you're closer to 90 than you are to 80 when you're finishing your term like people don't want that
2: yeah and there's a lot of weird conspiracy theories about him just being a stooge of his aids and so on i don't think there's any indication of that but he also doesn't seem on the extreme end of the bell curve of having high energy for somebody his age and you know what most 82 year olds find it hard to run a campaign for president of the United States. You don't have to believe any weird things or be a you know amateur doctor.
1: Most 60-year-olds find it difficult.
2: Right. So that's a real concern. So when you're listening to these democratic focus groups, and when you're listening to focus groups of independent voters, what kind of democratic arguments have pull? And where do people sort of get off the train? Where do people start to say, you know what, I don't trust the dumps? Is it just that Dems have a White House and, you know, for all kinds of reasons at the moment, people aren't feeling great about the state of a country, including inflation and so on. Or is there something about the way the Democrats present themselves that they could fix to put themselves into a stronger position in 2024?
1: Yeah. And listen, I just want to say up front before I give this advice that I come from the center right. And so I get accused sometimes of people are like, well, you just want Democrats to sound like Republicans when I sort of offer my feedback on what I think Democrats could do. But I want to tell you that this is not Trump. If I was going to give what I personally wanted, it would sound very different from this advice. This advice comes from listening, as I have over the last number of years, both to swing voters, meaning people who voted for Trump in 16 and then Biden in 20, but also for the people who are really on the fence about Trump. You know, when we do the focus groups, a lot of times we will section them off, will say, um, well, we want Trump voters, but people who rate him as having done a very bad job, right? So people who are on the bubble, they didn't want to vote for Trump, but they basically wouldn't vote for a Democrat. And here's the thing. Democrats have a massive branding problem. Republicans just generically, people have a sense that Republicans are better on the economy. And Carville, when he said, you know, it's it's the economy, stupid. I was like in high school, it, but it wasn't until I started doing the focus groups where I was like, oh, oh yeah, it's the economy, stupid. You ask people just like, what do you care about? And they will tell you from their hearts, like they want to work, they want jobs, they want to be able to take care of their kids, they want to be able to pay to go on vacation. They do not want things handed to them. They do not like big omnibus spending bills. They do not like the way Democrats sort of approach the world of policy from a like, well, we're going to push more money into this and more money into this. And there's also, you know, Democrats are, are suffering from a bit of a sense among voters, especially these white working class voters, that they're not as patriotic, that they're not as focused on America, that they're not as focused on the working man and the average problems. They both will simultaneously be motivated by things that they think are insane, like the idea of a biological male being able to swim competitively in a women's race. And right, like, imagine you're like the median voter, which is like a 50 year old white working class male, you know, so they can both be riled up by that, right? Republicans can get them riled up by that. And at the same time, they will be frustrated when Democrats engage on it because what they want is to hear people talk about the economy and jobs. Dems are kind of like backed into this place where Republicans can kind of go on offense on a lot of these grievance cultural issues. But if Democrats play defense on those issues or engage in them, they also lose ground because people, they really want to talk about jobs and inflation or like that's what they want to hear from from policymakers. And Democrats still talk about policy and Republicans don't really.
2: So what do you think is the right strategy here? Because, you know, Shari Berman, who has been on this podcast a number of times, very smart political scientist, says, well, Democrats need to just pivot to the economy. And she has a broader theory about the fact, that not talking enough about the economy is one of the reasons for the rise of populism. Here's why I don't quite agree with Sherry. I agree with her on many things, which is that it seems to me that Democrats don't have credibility to speak on the economy and other issues if people don't trust them on that gut feeling cultural stuff. So I think that, In order to gain a hearing, in order to gain the trust of people, you got to say something that makes them trust in culture, and then you can pivot, right? So I'm in favor of a pivot. I'm in favor of uh, left-leaning parties being the party of people who both believe in economic growth, but also ensure people that they get a fair shake, that their lives are going to be better than that of their parents, that kids are going to be better off than them. I think all of that needs to be core- to a successful left-wing message. But I don't think that talking about the economy without addressing the vulnerability on culture is ever going to work because I think people are not going to listen. So what's the way to address vulnerability on culture to defend the things in which most people, in fact, are with the left, but also to very clearly distance yourself from the things in which a lot of people very reasonably are not with the left, and then... Pivot. Is that a jujitsu move that's just too hard to pull off?
1: No, it's not a jujitsu move that's too hard to pull off. So there was this moment, right, when somebody was accusing Joe Biden of something being a socialist. And his response was, Do I look like a socialist? And that was all he needed to say because the thing is, no, he doesn't. He doesn't sound like a socialist. John Fetterman, who's actually very progressive, try and accuse him of being a socialist, right? But because he looks like a WWE superstar, And he authentically talks about this, you know, dope from New Jersey, who is like a Hollywood, you know, that's enough for people. They think he embodies Pennsylvania. They think he's a visual representation of Pennsylvania there in his hoodie and his cargo shorts. And so I think that actually what you need are Democrats. And this is why I like a governor from Michigan. Like, it can't be just what you talk about. It's everything that you embody. And so some of it is like, yeah, if you're talking about women, don't say pregnant person. You know, don't say chest feeding. And so there's some of those things. But like, you also just have to feel to Americans like you are authentically speaking to them, care about them. You can have sister soldier moments if you want. You can have things where you push back against the progressive left. I think it is beneficial to do so. Um, But I actually think that it is much more an authentic piece of how you carry yourself than it is about just what you're talking about, what you choose to talk about. I think people will trust you if you are authentically yourself and then push on the economy jobs. And also, I got to say, there's this other piece, which is it's kind of like a patriotism. I mean, people don't trust Democrats on loving America and wanting the best for Americans. And so I don't think you've got to like go out in a flag, you know, tuxedo or anything. But I do think a healthy sense of America is the greatest place on Earth. The pitfalls are when you spend all your time kind of doing the academic left thing of like, well, you know, America, we've really missed the mark on all these things like, no, look to the future. Clinton is a is a not a great character model, but he is a great political model for somebody to say, you know, whatever is wrong with America can be solved by what is right with America and leaning into what makes us good. People want to be told a good story about themselves. And Democrats need to give people hope for the future on jobs in the economy and make them feel good about themselves and who they are, which I think Republicans do a much better job of right now than Democrats.
2: And Barack Obama, by the way, was excellent at that too. I don't think anybody can accuse credibly Barack Obama of soft-peddling the dark elements of American history or being aware of those. He spoke about those frequently and movingly, but he also subsumed that into a narrative of how the country can become a better place and what there is to love about this country. And that feels to me very clearly like the place where you're telling the truth and you're also politically viable. Just the last question, we started off thinking a little bit about the January 6th hearings and the ways that Beware weren't sinking in. Look, I mean, to me as a political scientist who you know first came to have a public presence by warning about the rise of populism and the threat to liberal democracy, the threat to democracy is a big story. Uh, To most voters, it's not. To most voters, inflation is a big story. So how should candidates, to some extent, how should the media talk about this threat in a way that feels true to the stakes of the moment, but that it actually carries people along and ensures that we don't vote for the people who are, in fact, a threat in those kinds of ways?
1: Well, it's not the media's job to tell people who to vote for, right? But I, I do think that the media should be focused on the threat to democracy because they understand it. I listen to Trump voters in the focus groups all the time, and they are really like when they talk about rationing their gas and feeling fearful about what they can pay for and having like these real concerns about the future. I sit there and think like, you can't make a pitch to these people about democracy. (laughs) Like you can't. And also, by the way, they are concerned about democracy because they think an election was stolen from them. Like the Republicans are more concerned about it than the Democrats. But I think we have to be very clear about what happened on January 6th, that it was a coup attempt. And that just because it was kind of a clown coup attempt, that doesn't make it any less of a coup attempt. And people should be clear eyed. I think as Liz Cheney has been, I think pushing into what Liz Cheney is saying is very important. Look, I, th- I think we need to be clear eyed about Donald Trump, the threat he presents to democracy, the erosion of our institutions, all of those things. I think people should tell that story. But like as just a piece of analysis and as understanding people, you have to be aware that democracy is an amorphous thing. It actually in some way is putting food on the table for people, but that's not how they think about it. Right. And so immediate economic and even cultural concerns are very likely going to trump democracy in the average voter's mind. And I don't think we have to spend our time like, Shh, God. I just think you can do both. Like, I think you can have like reasonable expectations of what is really going to drive their motivations while also being incredibly clear eyed about what the threats are in front of
2: us. And it seems like, especially if Trump were to be the 2024 candidate, what he can do in democracy is to drive home how un-American Trump is, right? Again, I think one of the problems of Democrats is that they're seen as being outside of a cultural mainstream. But Trump is also seen as being outside the cultural mainstream. And a lot of the reason for that is that he doesn't have any respect for almost basic institutions that most Americans actually care about. So I wonder whether that's something that you can use to highlight, as Biden did in certain ways in 2020... This guy is not decent. This guy is not an ordinary candidate. But then you have to pivot to uh, you know, here's what we're actually gonna do for you and here's how we're gonna make your life better.
1: Yeah, although I gotta tell you, actions are gonna matter more than words. Like when you talk about credibility, this is the problem, is like if you have four years of Joe Biden that look like the last two years, you can't make that pitch. Joe Biden can't credibly make that pitch. You know, then you're sort of left with, don't compare me to the Almighty, compare me to the alternative as your only thing and like one of the big precarious places we could leave democracy is that the only way for the non-authoritarian party to win is if the worst authoritarian or like the worst possible candidate is the one that they get to go up against like that that's the only way to win they have to win to some degree on the idea that they convince people that they can govern and something affirmative and that's a show don't tell
2: sarah longwell thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: thanks for having me great talk